So as we journey towards Easter, this season of Lent invites us to think about, to consider, to be to offer ourselves, really, to be transformed. Because salvation is more than just a transaction. It is more than just um, moving from across a, a line from belief to, from unbelief to belief. It, it is about our whole being being transformed, our whole life, our whole, everything about us being shaped and formed through the Holy Spirit. God wants to transform us into his likeness um, and, you know, I was, as I thought about that, I thought, you know, we're all uh, being shaped and formed in different ways, but we, the, the, the hope, the, the, the purpose, the desire is that we would become more like Jesus, that you would more and more resemble Jesus, uh, because family resemblances are a reality, like it or not. Anybody... Anybody know what I'm talking about, right? There's that moment when you realize that you are a lot more like your parents than you thought or you want to admit or want to acknowledge. Um, Like if I threw this picture up on the screen, would you be able to pick out the family resemblance? Like if I had to to say like who who are related, it wouldn't be hard for you to figure that out. One's not related. It's not hard to figure out which one, right? Um, what, what, what I want to ask you today, though, is if you were in a lineup with Jesus, would there be a resemblance? Not in physical characteristics, um, but in your character. The attributes of Jesus' character, would, would people say that your life resembles those things, and you can say, really, ultimately, it comes down to one thing. Jesus said that, right? He said the whole law is summed up in this, in loving God and loving people, which ultimately is about relationships. So today, we look at the relationships of Jesus, and how do we grow in the Spirit How do we allow the Spirit to transform us to grow into the fullness of Christ in the relationships in our lives? You could say that ultimately the quality of your life is boiled down to relationships. Your relationship with God and your relationship with other people defines the quality of your life. Spiritually, uh, we all are made for relationship, and relationship is ultimately the sum of our, our life. And so... What does our relationship, how do our relationships reflect the character of Christ and ultimately the, the one characteristic of Christ, which is love? Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, follow God's example, therefore as dearly loved children and walk in the way of what? Of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see, Christ emptied himself. He became a a human being, left his divine rights and privileges, came and lived among us, and then died for our sin and was resurrected to life that we might have life. This is all about love. Now, it's not the same kind of love that the world. We have to unhitch ourselves from the definitions of love that we've been, we've been sold in our culture. Because love, biblical love looks different. Biblical love 
it invites us to, uh, to, to, to love through action. You could say love is a verb, right? You could say love is any time that you, you live or you act with, the other, with another person's best interest in mind. That could be one definition of biblical love, that, that God came and he gave and he acted on our behalf to bring us life for our benefit. What does your life look like? Does your lo- life look like, does everything revolve around your own benefit or others? The more that you're transformed into the likeness of Christ, the more that your actions revolve around the benefit of, on the behalf of others instead of just on, the, on your own behalf. Now, we, again, we've got to unpackage the flowery, romantic kind of love and, you know, a lot of the love. I mean, think about it. Pay attention to the songs you listen to on the radio and how many of them have to do with love. We're obsessed with the idea of love, but maybe it's a little bit different idea than what God is inviting us into. There's this longing and this craving for this, but it looks different than what you see on a rom-com, okay? There, there's a little element of it that's true, but God is inviting us into a deeper relationship, a deeper love. And here's what I would say is the foundation of all of this is understanding God's love for you. Do you understand, do you know, have you received, have you accepted the fact that the creator of the universe actually loves you in this way, that the creator of the universe acts on your behalf and for your benefit, that he wants for you to flourish, but flourishing looks maybe different than some of us think. It's not about more for you, but it's about a, a life of love, of flourishing love. But it starts with us accepting God's love for us, right? I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you don't accept God's love for you, if you struggle still with insecurities, not knowing your worth as God defines it, then you have a hard time living that out. First um, John 4 said it this way, we love because he first loved us. That it's based on the depth of the Father's love for you. And so I want to invite you first to consider the Father's love for you. And the ways in which he wants to express his love for you. Jesus does this through story so often. Jesus' teachings often were through story. Jesus was, uh, I think maybe we should pay attention to his words. They're pretty important, right? And, but he didn't just teach facts. He taught, he used story because we find ourselves in the story. One of the greatest stories, it's actually part of three stories in Luke 15, Jesus tells the story of, of a lost sheep that the, the shepherd goes to find, um, a lost coin that seemingly wasn't valuable, but to the person uh, who had lost it, it was worth turning the house over just to find the one lost coin. You see, in each story, there, there's something that has been lost that is of, of extreme value. The third story, probably the greatest story ever told, is the story of the lost son. And we find ourselves in the story. Luke 15, uh, Jesus says that uh, there was a man, he tells this story, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. In, in essence, the son is asking for his inheritance. He's asking for what's due to him before the time has come. He's saying to his father, it's just as good to me if you were already dead, so why don't you go ahead and give me what's mine? And in their culture, 
the father had every right to disown his son, to cut him off, to, to even punish him harshly, but he doesn't do this. He, he actually acknowledges his wish and gives him the inheritance. And it says not long after that, the son, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. He wants to run as far away as he can and there squandered his wealth in wild living. He goes far away. You know, I don't know what was in his heart. I don't know. Jesus doesn't explain all the details. He leaves it open because I think he wants us to find ourselves in it, right? What we see, what we know is that he ran away. And we know what it is to run away. We know what it is to turn our backs. We know what it is to to reject his grace, his love, his provision in our lives, to go seeking to make a better life for ourselves. We know what that is. He doesn't tell us how he squandered the wealth. He doesn't tell us what the wild living is. We don't, you know, we don't need to know because we know. We don't need Jesus to tell us because we know what our vices are. We know what the things are that lure us away, that that, that tempt us to deny the love of the Father, to not rest in the security of his, of his love and, and to stay home. We know what that is. Jesus knows that we know what that is. He invites us into the story to see ourselves, not just in the, fir- in the first son, the younger son who runs away, but also in the son, of course, who is there, who judges his brother, who won't even call him a brother, who says this son of yours to his dad. You see, he denies the family resemblance. There's broken relationship. This is a story of two lost sons, but it's really even more than a story of two lost sons. This is a story of the father. Because the father's love is compelling in the story. See, we find ourselves in the story in, in a little bit of both sons. There's a little bit of both of them in us. But reflect on the Father's love in, in light of this story, in light of where you find yourself in the story. I, I don't know. Like, I'm going to use a little holy imagination. Is that okay? Like, I'm just going to imagine if Jesus was telling this story today that he might he might change some of the particulars. Like, I think maybe that the father would be living in Montana on a huge ranch. And he's lived there for generations. And there's a son who, 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 who denies his, his, his family name, who runs far away. And yet the father wakes up every morning. This is how I see it playing out today in my mind. The father wakes up every morning and he goes out to the front porch and he sits on the front porch and he's got a big mug of coffee and he drinks his coffee every morning and he enjoys the coffee and he enjoys the scenery. It's the most beautiful place and his family's been there for generations, but he only wants one thing. And that's why he sits on the porch every morning because the one thing that he wants is for his son to come home. And so he looks at the horizon every day as the sun rises. He hopes and he hopes and he hopes. And then one day, there's just a little figure on the, on the horizon as the sun rises. And his heart begins to become hopeful. But, but this doesn't really look like his son. The family resemblance through life's difficulties has been beaten almost out of him. You see, it says that the son 
lost everything. The son squandered everything. That he lost it all and then a a severe famine hits the land and he has no option but to work as a pig farmer. This is a Jewish boy working as a pig farmer. Jesus is emphatic that he has hit rock bottom. This is as low as he could get. But then a key phrase in verse 17, Jesus says, when he came to his senses. I wonder what it takes for some of us to come to our senses. I wonder how far we have to go before God gets our attention. God is always wanting to get our attention. He is always speaking. He is always speaking in love, calling us home out of our our squanderous living with an extravagant love that sits on the front porch and waits for us to come home. And as that little figure gets closer and closer that morning as he's watching, he begins to notice that although his shoulders are, shrump, shrump, uh, are, are slumped over and it doesn't look like the same boy that left, it's a shell of, of his son. He still sees the family resemblance. Friends, even when you hit rock bottom, even when it takes forever for you to come to your senses, when you turn and go home, the father always sees his image in you still. He sees because he has made you in his image. And the father runs to him. He sees him come and he recognizes through the external appearances, through the mess he's made of his life. He doesn't even listen to his speech. Remember the son came back and he said, he had rehearsed it the whole way home. You know, I'll go back to dad. I don't deserve to be called a son, but maybe he'll welcome me as a servant because even his servants have it better than I have here as a pig farmer in the slop. And so he goes back, and this well-rehearsed speech starts to, to come out, and the father says, stop it right now. You're my son. You've come home. It's time to party. And he looks to the servants, and he says, go kill the fatted calf. We're about to have the biggest party ever. And the brother's in the distance, and the brother's like, Dad, you didn't even give me a weenie roast, and this, this rascal comes home, and you want to throw a party for him? There are two lost sons, but there's an extravagant love of the Father, is what Jesus wants us to know, first and foremost. So when you find yourself in this story, it begins to change everything about your relationships with others, because your insecurities start to wash away, because you start to receive, and this is a difficult lifelong process, but the love of the Father is, is, is for you, for your benefit, for your flourishing. Any directives, any, any loving guidance is, are, are like guardrails to keep you going on the path to life. It's selfless love. Love is always selfless. I mean, even in the way that the father runs to his son, we see this. You know, it says that the father ran to his son. Now, ancient, in Jesus' day, Middle Eastern culture, a a, a dignified man did not run. And, And this is weird for us, like, to consider. But you have to think, like, stop thinking gym shorts running, okay, He's not running a triathlon. This is not a noble thing. He's wearing a tunic, a long robe. He has to pick it up, and he has to run. Okay, it does not look good. 
This dignified man has to drop all of his dignity, all of his, his self. He's self-assured because he doesn't care what anybody else thinks in that moment. All he cares about, all of his thoughts are fixed. This is like David dancing in worship because he recognizes the love of the Father for him. It's the same thing. He becomes so undignified because all he cares about is this reality that his son has come home. This is a selfless love. Because love always acts out of interest for the other. This is what love is. Think about it this way. How many times have you ever known somebody who was selfish, who refused to be generous, who was thinking about themselves all the time, who was self-centered in this way. How many of you have thought about, how many of you know somebody like that or recognize that in someone? I've never heard anybody when they, when they recognize that in somebody else say, that person is so much like Jesus. You know, it doesn't matter how many Bible verses they know. It doesn't matter how they pray. If they don't love, you don't look at them and say, they remind me of Jesus. Because to be, to resemble Jesus always means that we're others folk, other focused. It means that we're not self-centered. It's like Kofi Niles, the missionary in Guyana, the pastor in Guyana that is a partner with us. And he, every couple of years, Kofi comes here. And every time Kofi comes, I'm convicted. I'm convicted because I complain. I'm convicted because I don't realize how much I have. I'm convicted because circumstances can rob me of joy. And if you're ever around Kofi, you know that circumstances never squash his joy. He is one bundle of contagious joy, and he shares that with everyone. Or, or a lawyer. When I see Kofi, like I think he resembles Jesus. When I, when I think of the lawyer Gary Haugen, if you know his story, he was one of the most prominent lawyers in the country, but God convicted him of the need for somebody to do something about global slavery, and he, he dreamed a dream, and God led him to start International Justice Mission and fight global slavery around the world. When I think of somebody who gives up so much to give it all to God, I think that person resembles Jesus because they're other-centered. They're not centered on themselves. So what would it look like for us to grow to resemble God's love more and more in our relationships to point to Jesus. I wanna give you four things, and I'm not gonna put them on the screen today. I'm gonna to ask you to take notes. I want you to record these. I want you to remember these. And if relationships are important, if, these, if, the, if you wanna grow in relationship, if you wanna be in lineup with Jesus and resemble Jesus, then, then I wanna encourage you to press these upon your heart, to live into them, to grow in them. The first is that we must choose to live missionally. Is your heart growing more and more like the Father's? This is kind of like being one of the servants that's at the Father's side. When he tells them to go and throw a party, you aren't the savior of the world. You aren't the Messiah, but you can be a servant of the Messiah. You can't save anyone. Jesus can, and his Holy Spirit can work through you. And so embrace God's mission in your life to tell people about Jesus, to point them to Jesus in the way that you love and serve. One of my favorite um, early in ministry, one of my favorite lessons came from a pastor and author named Steve Shogren. 
And, and he talked about living this way, living missionally, and he used an analogy that I love that's stuck with me ever since, that's what I aspire for my life to be. He said, you know, a lot of Christians, especially when we first come to Christ and maybe you have a radical conversion and you want every, your, your will, your desire is right, your heart is right, but you want everybody uh, to, to know Jesus so much that you're like a shark in the water. Anybody known anybody like that? Like it's that person at the office that, that, that like everybody avoids? Well, tell me, if you're living like Jesus, is everyone avoiding you? No. But they see blood in the water and it's like I'm gonna convert, convert. I'm, my job is to convert every person to get you to convince you to live like me, to convince you to believe like me and everybody's like I want nothing of that. <laughs> They're sharks. On the other end of the spectrum, though, you've got um, what he calls carp, or the analogy he uses is a carp. Anybody know what a carp is, right? And now, like, carp are helpful, right? They clean the water. Okay, just ignore that part for a second. The analogy kind of breaks down there, right? But what do carp do? They just lay around. They're, in, they're, they're inactive, and they just kind of get fat because they suck on the muck and the vegetation on the bottom and they don't do anything and nobody says, ooh, look at the beauty. I mean, how many of you have gone like to the lake and said, I hope we see a carp today. It would be beautiful to see. Nobody says that because they don't do anything. They just kind of lay around. And a lot of Christians kind of live that way, right? What about a dolphin? Who doesn't love a dolphin? Right, I, I finally got my boat out of spring break. I got to go fishing. I took my niece. We, well, I say I went fishing. I didn't go catching. I went fishing, which means, you know, you know what that means. But, but what I did enjoy is, like, anytime I get to see a dolphin, I love just, there's something about dolphins that attract, that attract us, that, that captivate us. There's this joy and this exuberance, and there's this life, and and, you know, I want my life to look like that because I think Jesus was kind of like that. When Jesus interacted with people, sometimes he gave hard teachings. Sometimes he challenged people to live in a different way. Yes, it wasn't soft, touchy-feely kind of love like we think about all the time. But when Jesus interacted with people, when Jesus encountered people, their lives always got better. When they were hurting, he brought wholeness. When there were needs, he met them. He, he stood up to the people who were actually robbing, the religious elite who were actually robbing people of life. Because Jesus wants us to experience this. This is what it looks like to live missionally, friends. And if we don't, if it's not your job to convert anybody, then I want you to follow Jesus' model too. If it's your job to be a witness, to, to show and to, to live a life that points people to Jesus, but not to convert people, then we, 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 we got to do this like Jesus taught us to do. You see, there's a, there's a place in Luke 10 where Jesus sends the 72 out to do what he has been doing, to heal and, and to bring life. And, and he says, as you go into the towns, go into the towns and wherever anybody welcomes you, if their peace invites you in, then your peace will rest on them. Then stay a while there, then live among them. But if people turn their, if they close their doors to you, just keep going. 
to the next house. Now, here, here's where, this is not about rejecting certain people and, and, and not making enemies out of people that, are, that reject you. Here, here's, I think, what Jesus' point is. You're not going to win with everybody relationally. There are certain people that are going to reject you, and that's okay. You just move along, and you sense in your spirit, where is God leading me to bless others? And so you look for what I would call the people of peace, the people who, are, who God is working in their life, the people who you have some common interest with. Um, I met a neighbor just the other day for the first time, and we began to talk. We have a lot of the same hobbies. A lot, we enjoy a lot of the same things. We talked about uh, we talked about outdoor kind of stuff and fishing and, and, and going uh, to Big Bend National Park, which is kind of a bucket list for me, and like he's done that. And we began to have a conversation. And I be- believe that God kind of opened a door there. There was a person of peace in my life because, because there was a connection. And I believe all of us, some of you would not connect with that whatsoever. I get it, Right? But who are the people of peace in your life that God is calling you to live missionally, where you live, where you work, where you study, and where you play? This is how relationships start to reflect the love of God when we are concerned with people in this way, when we have this desire for God to live through us, to use us. Secondly, okay, live missionally. Commit yourself to living missionally. Secondly, if we're going to grow in love, we must understand this. You must understand that you need a diversity of relationships. You must seek to live in a diversity of relationships. What this means is that healthy relationships is not, okay, what I'm not saying when I'm talking about people of peace, it doesn't mean that you find everybody who's just like you, whose life experiences are just like yours, whose skin color is the same as yours. The age is the same. The nationality is the same. You see, God is at work. His kingdom love crosses all of these borders, all of these boundaries. The healthiest churches are made up of people of all ages and that our passion and our desire is to reach the young and the old alike. That's why tonight, I want you to, uh, Kate said something about the worship night tonight. I want you to come tonight. I want you to worship tonight. This is an opportunity for our students to lead a worship experience, but it's not designed for our students specifically. It's designed for the whole church to worship, and we can learn from each other. We can be inspired and grow as adults by, by living and relate. We can also, how many people do you know who are walking through a different season of life? How many people are you seeking who have different life experiences because of their cultural backgrounds? How do we seek to live in a diversity of relationships in a way that inspires our faith and helps us to be a witness in the world. This is part of, of living health, in health, healthy, growing. This is part of resembling Jesus in our relationships. Okay, live missionally, seek diverse relationships. And then thirdly, to grow in love like Jesus means that we must not be consumed by anger. Okay, this is more of the defensive kind of model here, right? I mean, this is the defensive part of this. How do, we, how, do we, how do we help ourselves walk through relationships um, in a healthy way? How many, how do we avoid what so often, or what are the most common ways that, that relationships unravel? How many relationships, how many marriages have unraveled because of anger, unfettered anger, unchecked 
anger. Because here's the thing, the Bible doesn't say anger is a sin. Anger is an emotion, an emotion that all of us experience from time to time. Jesus got angry. And so if you get angry, doesn't mean you're not like Jesus. The question is how do you react, how do you respond? Do you grow, have you, are you growing in your ability to, to uh, manage and to, in a constructive way, talk about the things that make you angry, to work out conflict in relationship, that, that the quality of your relationships probably will be affected more by your ability to work through these kinds of conflict and difficulty than anything else. You see, Ephesians 4 gives us an example of how to love in this way, and in verses 26 and 27, Paul says, in your anger, do not sin. He doesn't say you won't get angry. He says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the, how? Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil a foothold. Deal with it, confront it, find ways to constructively work through it. It is a part of of relationships. It doesn't mean something is wrong when you have conflict, but how will you deal with it? Which leads us to the fourth thing, forgive freely. If we wanna resemble Jesus, we have to live missionally, live thinking about others. We have to seek a diversity of relationships. We have to not be consumed by anger, and ultimately we have to grow in love by freely forgiving others. Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ God forgave you. Here's the thing, hurting people will hurt people. We are all imperfect and we all experience pain and hurt and we all have hurt others. And people will hurt you. And living in relationship with other people means that you will be hurt. Jesus experienced this too. But are you, the, the prison is not whether you'll be hurt. The prison that you put yourself is, in is when you refuse to forgive. Now, just like love needs a definition, I think forgiveness needs a definition. Let me talk to you about what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not being a doormat and continuing to live in abusive and harmful relationships with a person who is unrepentant. This is important. Forgiveness is not saying that it's okay. Forgiveness is not saying, I, forgiveness is not that I have to, for, forgiveness is not the same as forgetting. It doesn't mean that the pain is still there. Here's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is letting the other person off the hook, not holding them responsible, not seeking retribution, not wanting them to suffer for what they've, how they've hurt you. This is what forgiveness is, and this is what Jesus did. And this is what it looks like when we live this way. I read a story of this Chinese house pastor, pastor of a house church, in a country where it's illegal, and, and he was... Um, arrested and beaten because he was a Christian. And he re later in his journal wrote about this experience and he said, you know, I found myself actually thinking as I was being beaten, I should be angry. But he wasn't. He wasn't angry because he said, I started to imagine this, this person, this interrogator, and what their life must have been like growing up where they lived. What their relationship with their father must have been like. 
to turn someone into a monster that could do this to another human being, what had to happen in their heart? And he said, I started to become sad, not mad. I started to become sad and compassionate, and I longed for this person to come to know the love of Jesus. And he recognized that even as this person was breaking his ribs, that he was feeling a sense of compassion. And friends, that's what, that's what Jesus looks like. What about Stephen? Like Stephen resembled Jesus probably as much as anybody. Stephen was an early follower of Jesus. He was, he was arrested for his faith and, and executed for his faith. And, and as he's looking at his persecutors, the Holy Spirit comes upon him and he looks at them and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> you see, Jesus' words on the cross to those who were executing him, Stephen, Stephen said those same words. There was a family resemblance. And I want to go back to my original question. Would there be, if you were in a lineup with Jesus, would the characteristics look the same? If somebody arrested you for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you of that crime? You see, when we grow in this love of God, it, it doesn't happen automatically. It's a day-by-day -day walking in grace, walking in his love, receiving his love, choosing to live missionally, choosing to let go of anger, choosing to forgive others. And that's my prayer for us. I want to invite the band to come on back up and lead us. I want to ask you um, to respond to this message, to the, whatever the Holy Spirit is leading you uh, to. Is there a broken relationship in your life, someone that you need to forgive? Um, how can you grow in love? Because relationships are all rooted in the foundation is love. Jesus, uh, Paul said that you can do all of these great things, 1 Corinthians 13, you can do all these great things, and yet if you have not love, you accomplish nothing. So with the definition of your life, be Christ-like love. Let's pray. God, we repent of the ways that our lives so, much so often revolve around ourselves, and we ask you, Lord, through your Spirit to convict us of that, um, to show us the ways that we are living selfishly and to invite, we invite your spirit to work in us, to transform us, to change us. May it be said of us when people look at our lives, they're a whole lot like Jesus. And God, come through your spirit right now. There's some of us who need to let go of pain and hurt. We haven't forgiven someone. And even as we leave this place, if, if the Spirit is prompting you, I invite you to do that, to write a note, to make a phone call. God, help us. Help us to grow in love for our neighbors. Help us, Lord, not to succumb to the temptations that this world so often leads us to see our differences instead of seeking to see your image in each person and, and God we pray that you'd help us to grow in our love for you and that that love for you would spill out into our lives and relationships 
where we live and marriages that flourish and point to Jesus with our kids and our grandkids, with our neighbors, with our coworkers, God, in our schools, wherever we are, that you would be known because of the way your people love and serve and give. It's in Jesus' name I pray.